0: This is Passport to Everywhere, an incredible worldwide journey as your host, Melissa Biggs Bradley, transports you to dream destinations, introduces you to extraordinary guests from all over the world, showcases the current state of travel, shares valuable insights, takes you behind the scenes at some of the most iconic hotels, and explores the future of travel. This is your Passport to Everywhere.
1: Dr. Tara Stowinski has what many would consider a dream job. As a child, she was deeply fascinated by animal behavior and planned one day to be a vet. However, a trip to Africa opened her mind to the world of apes. She pivoted and became a primatologist. She spent over two decades studying the lives of monkeys, and she now serves as the CEO and chief scientific officer of the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund in Rwanda. Her team leads some of the most exciting conservation projects of our time, and the fund is a partner with National Geographic. Indigari worked with Dr. Stowinski and the Diane Fossey Fund earlier this year for a private event and exclusive look at the new Ellen DeGeneres campus, which was truly groundbreaking. The fund works towards conservation efforts for wildlife in Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo. It supports scientific research, education efforts, and community development programs. Tara leads her team with empathy and a contagious passion, and I'm excited to share her perspective on the relationship between tourism and conservation. Now, just in time for National Gorilla Day on September 24th, and for the 35th anniversary of the film, which profiles the life and work of Diane Fossey, Gorillas in the Mist, I'm excited to introduce you all to Dr. Stowinski. She will share her perspective on the relationship between tourism and conservation. Tell stories of the gorillas and transport you to one of the most beautiful countries I've ever been lucky to visit.
0: Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley will continue. Listen to new episodes Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Sirius XM Business Radio Channel 132. experience life without borders. You're listening to Passport Passport to to Everywhere. Everywhere. Here's your host, Melissa Biggs-Bradley.
1: I'm Melissa Biggs-Bradley, and you're listening to Passport to Everywhere. I'm speaking with Dr. Tara Stowinski, CEO of the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund, about conservation and tourism. And if you're curious about gorilla trekking, head to Indigari.com for our in-depth reports on travel to Rwanda and be sure to stay tuned for today's destination hack with Indicaris production director Catherine Nathanson on gorilla trekking. We'll be covering what you need to know before planning a gorilla trek, what to pack, and what it's like once you're there. So, I'd love to just dive right in. Let's do it. First, I have to ask you, how did you end up in the field of primatology? It's not a, a career that I think that many kids Uh, probably right on their first grade what I want to be when I grow up lists, Uh, not because they wouldn't want to be, but because they don't know about it. So how did you end up there?
2: Yeah, I was really lucky. I grew up wanting to be a veterinarian. I loved animals. I had lots of animals. And that was really what I knew to do if you liked animals. Um, Went to college got accepted to vet school and deferred for a year to go do my master's in zoology in England. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to go to Africa and volunteer um, on a PhD students project. We studied jackals in Zimbabwe. I never actually saw them. They were radio collared, so we were out at night. We would just follow this beeping sound around, but I absolutely loved it. I fell in love with the the field work as well as with being in Africa. So when I came back, I changed course and applied to do a PhD instead of, of going to vet school. And that was kind of the trajectory I went on and then was very lucky to study primates both in captivity as well as in the wild. And that really became a focus of mine. I mostly wanted to work in Africa. I thought about doing a PhD on elephants and on lions, but ended up in the primate world. Okay, and then how did that take you to
1: the Diane Fossey Center? Because there's, as we know, there's lots of different kinds of primates. Yep. Um, But mountain gorillas are a very special... Very special creature.
2: They are, yeah. So I did my PhD in conjunction with Zoo Atlanta. um, And Zoo Atlanta has a very large collection of Western lowland gorillas. So I was studying the gorillas here. um, But it's also the home, the international headquarters of the Dian Fossey Gorilla Fund. So there's a small team that are based out of Zoo Atlanta, basically our communications and fundraising and finance team. And that's how I eventually got connected to the organization because I was studying gorillas and then the organization was based here at the zoo. So I have now worked with the Fossey Fund for 21 years. The first 13 were as in a scientific capacity and then the last eight and a half or so um, as the CEO. Okay, so... I'm fascinated. I want to talk about both of those
1: roles, but in the scientific capacity, and you mentioned loving field work, give us a sense of what a day in the field as a primatologist looks like.
2: Uh, it's long, (laughs) it is, it's amazing. So, you know, our teams, we have, um, a lot of researchers who are in Rwanda and Eastern Congo collecting data every day on the gorillas. And it means getting up quite early in the morning. Um, you go out into the field and usually what you want to do is try and find where the gorillas slept the night before, uh, every night, each gorilla makes a little nest on the ground that they sleep in. And so you, you find their nest and then from there, you can sort of trace where they are and catch up with them. And so once you get to the group, you then spend however many hours you're in the field for, we're usually there for about four hours a day, collecting detailed data on individual gorillas. So what they're doing, what they're eating, who they're spending time with, et cetera. We also collect um, biological samples. So not we not only want to know what's happening on the outside of the gorillas, but what's going on on the inside. For example, what, what are causes of stress in the gorillas? And so to do that, we actually can collect uh, non-invasive samples like their feces, um, so we collect their feces and we can go back into the lab and actually get an idea of their stress levels. We can look at genetics, who's fathering whom, who's related to whom. We can look at things like um, health, Health. look at parasite loads. So gathering all that information in the field, um, it's wet, it's cold. A lot of people don't think necessarily of Africa as they think of it as a hot, humid climate, but these are mountain gorillas. They're living at you know, 8,000 to or 7,500 to 13,000 feet. So it can be quite chilly. Um, It's rainy. It rains a lot of the year. So it's really challenging conditions, but one of the most amazing jobs you could ever have.
1: Amazing. Now, I've been lucky to get to spend time with the mountain gorillas many times um, over the years in, in Rwanda and Uganda. And they are really, really special. And for those who may not have been able to spend time with These guys, they're they're our cousins in many ways. I would love to have you talk a little bit about um, what the mountain gorillas are, how they're different from other primates, maybe how they're so closely related to us. um, Because as you described, these are individuals. It's not like going on safari in, in another place where you don't necessarily know what lions or jackals you're looking at. Mm-hmm. All of these guys, we, you know, there's such a limited number. We know who they are and
2: we know their stories. So, so you talk a little bit about them. Sure, for sure. So we have now been working in Rwanda for 56 years and, um, as you mentioned, uh, all of these individuals are known to us. We know six generations of gorillas. So we know who the dad is, who the granddad is, who the great granddad is. Um, And that work was obviously all started by by Diane Fossey, but has continued on in the 36 years since her death. Um, But yeah, they're all known as individuals. Uh, Gorillas are great apes. So they are different from monkeys. Um, There are five types of great apes on the planet. Gorillas, chimpanzees, orangutans. Most people are familiar with those. Bonobos are another type of great ape a lot of people haven't heard of. And then the fifth species of great ape are actually humans. So we are technically in taxonomy terms, a great ape. Um, Of the gorillas, there's four different types, three of which are not found uh, in captivity at all. So the only place you can see them is in the wild. Western lowland gorillas are the only gorillas that you would see at a zoo. So when you go to a zoo, you see gorillas from West Africa. Mountain gorillas are one of the three types that are only found in the wild. Uh, There are only a thousand of them left on the planet. So they are among the world's most at-risk species. Um, They share 98% of our DNA. And what I love to say about them is they share our common humanity. So like us, they take care of the most vulnerable in their families. Like us, they grieve the loss of a family member. Um, Like us, they're highly intelligent. So when you're out watching gorillas, to your point, Um, These are individuals. When you look in the eye of a gorilla, you see a kindred spirit looking back at you and, you know, you're in and amongst their family. It's not like a safari where you're in your vehicle and, and they're outside. You are in this gorilla family because they're letting you be there. And this 400 pound silverback is letting you be in and around his family that he's very protective of. So it's, I think, an experience like no other to be out in the wild with them. Totally agree, and and again, I I've
1: been lucky. I I didn't go and see the gorillas until I'd been on many many safaris, and the experience I, I describe to people as being it, you are literally being dropped into the living room, <laughs> of the family, and you get to watch the teenagers, you know, maybe fighting amongst themselves or or you know, mom scolding a, a toddler. I mean, you can completely relate to the family dynamics. It's a, it's a very different experience. And as you said, you're there by their permission. And I, you know, I've obsessed with Diane Fossey. I think she's one of the most interesting people to really, to set examples for all of us in the last century in terms of being such a trailblazer. Uh, And I've been lucky to, to read about her and see gorillas in the mist multiple times. But a lot of people don't understand. I mean, in many ways, I credit her as one single human being who changed the way all of us think about this animal. And there was such a King Kong misperception that these were dangerous animals. And she broke that mindset. Will you talk a little bit about the really the pioneering spirit and genius of what it is she did?
2: Yeah, I would love to. Um, So while Diane wasn't the first person to study mountain gorillas, she was the first to really get to know them as individuals and to be accepted into their family group. So she put them through a process which we call habituation, which is basically helping them to lose their fear, fear of humans. And once that happened, she could then sit, as we do now, in and amongst them and really got to know them as individuals. And I think telling the story of these wonderful family groups that you so, so, um, Adequately described is part of what has made people really interested in them and as part of what has built this this incredible ecotourism industry around the mountain gorillas that has definitely helped to conserve them. But when Diane went and she went in 1967 the population was declining. So gorillas were being poached for their heads and their hands. People thought they would make great trophies to have on your mantle. People were going into the park with their cattle and degrading this already very small area. And Diane predicted that mountain gorillas would actually be extinct by the year 2000. But instead, thanks to the work that she started, and then that's been continued by organizations like ours, lots of partners, and really under the leadership of the Rwandan government, they are the only non-human great ape on the planet that is increasing in number, which is just really a tremendous um, accomplishment. Now, there's still, we always say it's still a very fragile conservation success because there are only a thousand of them. But I think it shows that with the dedication, the long-term effort, the resources that have gone into mountain gorilla conservation, that we can turn the tide for animal species, which I think is a really needed message in this day and age when, when there's over a million plants and animals that are threatened with the extinction right now,
1: so Tara, if you had to say what her um, greatest legacy was, mm-hmm. what would you,
2: how would you describe that? I mean, I think she has a couple. I I think that one, certainly for me as a scientist, is this legacy of the longest running gorilla research study in the world. And so most or a lot of what we know about gorillas and certainly changing this perception of them from ferocious beasts to the gentle giants that they are came from the work of Diane Fossey. But maybe her biggest legacy is just making people care. Um, is explaining and showing how amazing these animals are, and that made people support their conservation, be interested in their conservation, and then ultimately want to come and see them, which is contributing a lot to their conservation. Yeah, so will you talk a little bit about the fund and the center
1: and how they came about? As you mentioned, un- unfortunately, Diane was killed in 1985 and it's still no one's actually ever been arrested as far as I know for her murder though it's presumed there were people who were getting fed up with her interfering with uh, the poachers and and locals but um how then did this fund in the center come about after her death
2: yeah so we are the original organization that Diane Fossey started so she um started, as I said, in 1967, she went, she was sent there by Louis Leakey as to be a scientist, but, you know, she could see what was happening to the gorillas and that if action wasn't taken, there wouldn't be gorillas left to study, and then in 1977, her favorite gorilla, Digit, was murdered by poachers. Um, When they found him, his head and his hands were gone. He died defending his family, and that really triggered something in Diane, and so she started a nonprofit called the Digit Fund in honor of Digit so that his life wouldn't go in in vain. Um, And through that, she started raising money to do more anti-poaching patrols in the forest. And after she died in 1992, the name of the organization was changed from the Digit Fund to the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund. So we've been that continuous organization since Diane's time. Um, we operate in, in we've been in Rwanda for 56 years. And in, in the year 2000, we also expanded over to start working in the Eastern uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo to protect another type of gorilla called a grower's gorilla. Um, and yeah, so we've just continued on. We, we, we A year ago, we opened our first kind of permanent center in Rwanda, so we've been operating out of houses and office buildings, but we built a purpose-built campus. It's, it's called the Ellen DeGeneres campus of the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund, but it's basically the headquarters where all of our work in Rwanda happens, and it's a place that people can come visit Um, We have a beautiful museum that talks a lot about Diane's work. It has her artifacts there. It has a replica of the cabin that she lived in for 18 years um, on site, as well as telling the stories of the gorillas that we know so well and what modern conservation of them looks like.
1: It's really amazing. And we were very lucky to work with you on filming a behind the scenes tour of the campus earlier this year. Can you talk a little bit about what the biggest challenges are for the center and the fund and for conservation in Rwanda generally?
2: Yeah, um in terms of of conservation in general, I think one of the biggest challenges and it's certainly a challenge we face is that um you know the the lack of funding for the enormous challenges that we're facing on the ground. I mean, we're dealing with things, and I'm not speaking specifically of Rwanda here, I'm speaking of conservation in general, but we're dealing with, you know, high levels of poverty, we're dealing with food insecurity, with civil unrest, Um, and and so just we're taking on very large scale problems to help try and help people as well as, as save animals, and that's actually our motto is helping people saving gorillas, because we know ultimately that for gorillas to thrive, people have to thrive as well. Um, so I think that's one of the biggest challenges. A lot of people don't realize that that environmental charities get about 4% of philanthropic dollars in the U.S. and the vast majority of that stays domestically. So we just are dealing with a, a really limited amount of resources to deal with some of the planet's largest challenges. Um, we're very lucky in Rwanda that gorillas are not hunted. They haven't been in a long time. So that threat that Diane faced is gone, but it is still, as I mentioned, a very small population, very small habitat. Um, and so one pandemic, one environmental catastrophe, climate change could really threaten the population. Uh, when you go to other areas of Africa where those other three types of gorillas that I mentioned, their hunting is a is a big challenge, or extractive industries like timber, logging, um, minerals, et cetera, really are a challenge to gorilla conservation.
1: And I'd love to get into that as well. But I do want to go back to Ellen DeGeneres' connection to the campus. Can you speak about how she became involved?
2: Yeah, it was really actually through her wife, Portia. Um, We had started down this project of wanting to build the campus. um, And we got a call one day that Portia wanted to make, um, to give her wife a unique 60th birthday present. I guess it's one of those, what do you give to, you know, people that, have had lots of wonderful experiences in life. And when we told her that we were building this new facility, it really matched well with um, Ellen's interest in conservation. And also she loves architecture. It's a big hobby of hers. Um, But the reason that Portia approached us was that um, when she and Ellen started dating, she asked Ellen, who is one person you would have liked to have interviewed that you never had the opportunity to? And she said, Diane Fossey. So Diane Fossey was a hero of Ellen's. When she was a child, she got the National Geographics that many of us saw. She she saw the difference that Diane made. And I think that really inspired Ellen. And so that's how this came about. And so they helped um, raise money for the project, they were the lead donor, Um, they gave a little over 50% of the money for the project. And then the rest we raised from, you know, our long term donors who have been very invested in the mission of this organization.
1: Wow, it's amazing. So going back to the gorillas, and I know that Ellen and Portia have gone and seen the gorillas and, and had amazing experiences in Rwanda, the the threats that they're currently facing. I mean, you mentioned, some of them habitat loss, but they're different in Rwanda than, for instance, in the Congo, where there is not the same protection of the species coming from the government because of civil unrest. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how, how you think about prioritizing all these different issues um, and, and how the scientists work on that?
2: Yeah, um, it's a great question, and we are really strategic in how we we approach it. We have four strategic pillars, and two of them, I say, are real legacies from Diane Fossey. So we help the Rwandan government protect those remaining gorillas. We protect about half the families in the park, and the government protects the other half. So we have trackers that are out 365 days a year, rain, shine, heat, cold. Um, and I always say that each gorilla family under our care, they have a dedicated a dedicated group of trackers, and so just as when we come home at the end of the day and we check on our family members, our friends, our pets, whomever we we you know is important to us, the same thing happens with the gorillas. And then science is another legacy of Diane's because she went there originally to study them. So those are two of our key pillars where we're out protecting the gorillas, and then we're conducting the critical science not just on the gorillas but on also on their whole ecosystem because we need to know the health of the forest to understand how well the gorillas are going to do. But then a really important part of our work that has evolved over the last two decades is what I call the people side of conservation. Um, So we do a lot to help train the next generation of of conservationists with a particular focus on African conservationists because they are very underrepresented in the study and protection of their own biodiversity. So working with universities in Rwanda and Congo to give early career um, scientists the opportunity to get out in the field and study these animals and publish their work that's a big part of what we do. And it's a big part of what happens at the Ellen campus, because we have labs and classrooms and a library and a computer lab to really provide the um, the infrastructure that they need to do this important work. And then our fourth pillar is around helping local communities. So helping them address the reasons that they're still dependent on the forest so we can minimize their dependence on the forest and also improve their lives. So looking at food security issues, water security, livelihood development, and just general education and making sure people around the park understand the value of the park, the ecosystem services it provides, the value of the gorillas to the Rwandan economy. So that's the approach we take. It's a very integrated approach, um, combining, again, the direct boots on the ground with working with local communities and early career conservationists. Um, and you mentioned the forest and how important that is. A
1: lot of people don't know until they've seen the gorillas that these gentle giants are vegetarians. So that's yep. one of the reasons it's so important that that forest has to be kept in good order. Is they eat? I can't remember. You'll you'll know how many pounds of bamboo or, or vegetation they have to eat a day.
2: Yeah, males can eat up to about fifty pounds a day. Of you think about how long it would take you to eat fifty pounds of salad <laughs> in a day. So yeah, they they they're they're diurnal. So they get up when the sun gets up, they'll get up and they'll forage for a little bit. And then they rest while they're digesting, you know, the adults will rest while kids wrestle and play and groom each other. And so, yeah, it's a very kind of tempo of just eating and sleeping and eating and sleeping with a lot of play interspersed by the kids not yeah. that different from humans in a lot of ways. It doesn't look that different from me like on a Sunday afternoon when I'm watching football. <laughs> <laughs> and actually that that reminds me that will you explain to people
1: how gorilla trekking is regulated because that's mm-hmm. a, the the I think the most interesting things that Rwanda has done from a really far-sighted conservation
2: perspective. For sure, for sure. Given the The small number of of gorillas left, the fact that they share so much of our DNA, which unfortunately means that they're also very susceptible to human viruses and things that can make us just a little bit sick can be quite a bit more serious in gorillas. And so as a result of that, the tourism to them is very regulated. So people who have been on safari, you might be used to driving up and there's a lion kill and you might have 20 vans surrounding those lions while they're eating. Um, It's very different with gorilla tourism. So each family of gorillas is only visited once per day for a maximum of one hour by a maximum of eight people. And so what that means is that for the other 23 hours a day, they get to be gorillas. And it's that's really designed to minimize the impact um, on them.
1: I mean, as I said, I've been very lucky to get to go many times, gorilla tracking, and every experience has been different. And every single one is just, you know, you are treasuring each minute that you're with them. And you certainly feel... The, the privilege of getting an hour with him. Beforehand, people are always saying, oh, an hour, that's not enough. Can I buy more? I'm a photographer. Absolutely no exceptions are made. And, and I think that's the way it should be. Yeah. Um, but we we talked a little bit about Rwanda, which to me is so much more. Uh, it's one of those countries that most people probably visit for the first time because they fall in love with the gorillas and the tourism there is having a huge impact. But the country itself is is a very special place. Will you talk first a little bit about the difference between seeing the gorillas in Rwanda or Uganda or, or Congo, which are the only places that you can see the mountain gorillas? Um, and then I'd love to, to talk to you a little bit more about the, the country and what makes it very special.
2: Yeah. Um, so I can speak mostly to seeing them in, in Uganda and Rwanda. Um, and the biggest, one of the biggest differences is the forest is very different. Um, so the, the population, the main population in Uganda is, is located in Windy, Impenetrable um, National Park. And it is a lower elevation forest. So it's it's a bit more hilly. It's a bit more dense underbrush. Um, and the gorillas, so they have a they have a different diet. There's a lot more fruit in their diet there, um, so they eat different things. They actually look quite a bit different, I think, um, but still a wonderful experience. I'm very partial to Rwanda, obviously working there. Um, I think the forest is really beautiful. So it's this high elevation forest, so it looks quite different. Um, I always describe it a little bit. Do- it's a little bit Dr. Seuss like, um, because it is such high elevation. There's not as many big tall trees that you would think of as being in a rainforest. Um, and there's lots of vegetation on the ground. So we always tease that the gorillas basically live in the equivalent of a salad bowl. Um, There's just kind of food everywhere for them. Um, And because it is high elevation, the, the mountain gorillas are really fluffy. They have a lot of hair to help keep them warm, and they're jet, jet black, except for the silverback, who will have that silver mantle on his back. And they're really just absolutely beautiful. Um, But both places are wonderful spots to see them. And as you mentioned, it's really the, they're the only places in the world where you can really have that kind of experience with mountain gorillas. And
1: one of the big problems in conservation throughout Africa is this habitat loss. And certainly in Rwanda, that's an issue because it is a very small country. It's, uh, as you, as you know, it's Landlocked country um, with a a large population, so the gorillas are living very close to civilization, and uh, as you mentioned, food security is an issue, and so for you know people to give forest and not take farmland, it's an issue. Um, But the government has been incredibly proactive about the role of conservation in building its economy through tourism. So I'd love to hear your perspective on how that partnership with the government has worked and and what makes it so special.
2: Yeah, the government of Rwanda, you're exactly right. They have been incredibly proactive about conservation and for a country that has a very high human population density, they've set aside about 10% of their land for national parks. Um, They have four national parks in the country. Uh, the Virunga National Park, I mean, Volcanoes National Park, where the gorillas are, is just one of them. Um, And I think one of the things that they've done is, um, you know, they have a revenue sharing program. So when you go to see the gorillas, not only does your permit help protect the gorillas and provide funding for the park, but 10% of the permit is actually shared with local communities to help address some of these needs that we've been talking about earlier. So there is a direct revenue sharing with the local communities. And as a result, it's not, you know, just the parks or just the government that's benefiting from tourism, but it's also the, the people that live near the parks.
1: And for all the places that you've seen conservation initiatives, Um, combined with tourism, ecotourism. I'm curious to get your perspective on how, you know, not just how it works in Rwanda, but just overall what you think a successful model looks like.
2: I think that a successful model is... um... You know, again, a a lot of the things we've mentioned—it's around you know strict regulations—and I think sometimes ecotourism actually can be detrimental. I think making sure tourists also know the impact that they can have, so they're not asking their drivers or their guides to do things that can impact the environment or impact the animals—and. And as I mentioned, that the tourism in Rwanda is very well regulated from that perspective of having a small number of tourists trying to keep them a healthy distance away from the gorillas. Tourists also wear masks to help minimize any disease transmission. I think making sure that local communities benefit from the tourism, so whether it's revenue sharing or job creation, et cetera, that ecotourism models need to have uh, an ability to impact the lives of the people that are there, oftentimes the money may end up far away. And the people that are actually living with wildlife, that are having elephants come and raid their crops, um, or, you know, lions come and kill their livestock, they're not actually benefiting as much as, as they need to. So I think that's a really important part of a successful ecotourism program as well. And
1: and you've been working in Rwanda for a long time. I'd be mm-hmm. curious To sort of hear how you feel tourism has changed, what were the impacts of the pandemic? I mean, I was lucky to be there in November of 2020 for a couple of weeks um, when, frankly, there was nobody else Mm. in the park or in Akagera or or in volcanoes. But um, it was an incredible moment to to be there. But I'd be curious to see long term. What you think the impact and the ramifications of that decimation of the tourism uh, industry there was and how that impacted the park and and how that the country's come back.
2: It's an excellent point and it's one of the things that we talk about a lot is that you know ecotourism is great, but there are drawbacks to it. first of all it's not going to work everywhere you know Rwanda is has incredible infrastructure. it has some of the most gorgeous hotels that you will ever find on the planet. Um, it has government priorities around conservation. that is not going to be the situation in in other in in every place. So a ecotourism isn't going to work everywhere else but B, you can't have all your eggs when it comes to conservation in a single basket. And so by depending solely on ecotourism, say, you know, as a conservation model, if you have a global pandemic, if you have a global financial downturn, then there can be really negative consequences. And that was seen across the continent in Africa. I know in South Africa, they really struggled from it. Um, Rwanda was really lucky. It did not lose any gorillas as a result of that. Um, but, But the human communities definitely were challenged. And we know that we saw an increase in the amount of snares that people were putting in the forest because they were struggling because of all the challenges that the pandemic brought. So I think it's a really important reminder that we need, just like, you know, you are you want a diversified economy, you want a diversified portfolio for yourself, you want to have a diversified funding source for conservation so that um, if something like this happens, that you don't run out of funding to pay guards to make sure that animals are protected to benefit local communities. Um, what I have seen in Rwanda over the last... Tr- 20 years ago, has been nothing short of, um, you know, one of the biggest transformations. I remember when I first went there and there was kind of one place that you could stay next to the park if you wanted to see gorillas. And now there are um, a whole variety of lodges on a a range of of prices, but really some very beautiful, very beautiful high-end lodges that have gone in that um, enable tourists to come and have a very luxurious experience. I don't know that they're necessarily expecting when they think of Africa or when they think of Rwanda, but that's really transformed people coming there and wanting to see their, see the country and, and the buildup of their other parks. So for a long time, tourism was really focused just on the gorillas and now Akagera, which is their savanna park, um, has been transformed. A lot of that wildlife was damaged or decimated in the years after the, the Rwandan genocide. and uh, um, the park was reduced to a third of its size. But the government has brought in black rhino. They've reintroduced white rhino, they've reintroduced lions. And it is a gorgeous landscape where people can now not just go to Rwanda to see gorillas, but they can go there to see your traditional savanna animals like zebras and giraffe and, and elephants and, and lions. Um, Nyungwe Park, which is in the southern part of the country, is also a gorgeous rainforest where they have habituated chimpanzees, Um, incredible nature walks, birding for people that are bird enthusiasts. So what I've seen in Rwanda is um, an investment in their other natural resources so that people have many options in the country to do ecotourism, and then an investment in the infrastructure to make sure that people have really beautiful state-of-the-art places to stay
1: yeah no it's it's extraordinary the the rewilding in akagera park i think is one of the most incredible success stories of african national parks because it it really and it's one of the most beautiful places to see animals it's you know it's it reminded me of botswana in a way because you're on the water right it, and and Nungwe, they've got so many great things in the country and We're not even talking about, to me, the greatest natural resource of that country is the Rwandan people.
2: For sure. For sure. I always say that, like you mentioned, I think a lot of people initially come to Rwanda because they have an interest in the gorillas. And what I love about when I take tourists over is that they fall in, you know they've just fallen in love with the country it's a beautiful landscape the people are incredibly warm and welcoming um and and that has just always become such a special part of going on a safari in Rwanda is getting to spend time with people getting time to, getting to know Rwandans to know a little bit about their history and just see what an amazing country it is like people are always floored by the fact that on the last saturday of the month the entire country volunteers in their community it's called Umaganda day and you are expected to be out from eight till noon working in your community you're not allowed to be out shopping or anything else you are that is a time that you dedicate to doing good in your community Um, they've had plastic bags outlawed in the country for more than a decade um, so just amazing things that have been accomplished, and people, I think love coming and learning about the culture and about the priorities that the government has set.
1: Yeah, I don't think there's a there's a country that is a better beacon for the rest of us in terms of being able to come through a horrific, experience Mm -hmm. like the genocide and then 20 some years later be the cleanest country in Africa, the greenest, the safest. I mean, you name it. Yeah. So I'd love to talk a little bit about your own experiences with the gorillas. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you're not supposed to have a favorite family or a favorite moment, but we're all human, so to speak. Um, (laughs) We're all apes and there's no way that you haven't found some moments or families that really particularly connect with you um, can you talk a little bit about some favorite experiences or what you've learned from the gorillas in all of your observations that have maybe changed your perspective on humans
2: yeah um... Yeah, every you know, every day with the gorillas is a different experience. Every family is unique, every individual is unique, they all have unique personalities. Um, and if people go to our website at gorillafun.org, you can actually take a personality test and find out which gorilla you are most like, which I always find to be a lot of fun. I'm um most like Cansby. Um, he is a pretty amazing gorilla. He got his name actually because. Diane Fossey had misidentified his mother as a male. And so one day she showed up and this male had given birth and she said, well, that can't be. And so he got his name of being Cansby. But one of my favorite stories about gorillas is actually a story that involves Cansby. So it's very common for these 400 pound males, you know, they're the largest primate on the planet and um, they have very strong Relationships with the youngsters in the group, and they're often left to babysit. So it's not uncommon to find a male who has lots of one and two year old kids around him, while the females, the moms, are off feeding or resting or whatnot. Um, Kansby actually is a record setter in a lot of ways. He presided over the largest group of gorillas we've ever that's ever been recorded anywhere. It was sixty five animals. Um, usually, a gorilla family is about ten individuals, and so he was often left with kids. And one day. Um, one of our research assistants was watching, and every time he, he was babysitting about five or six kids, and every time a kid approached him, he would do a vocalization that we call a pig grunt, which is a mild vocalization. It sounds a little bit like, and it's basically like a warning that if someone's gonna take your food resource or someone's getting too close, you do that vocalization. So he was vocalizing at these kids and every time he would do that, they would sort of walk away from him. So they would avoid him. So a very unusual behavior for the normally very tolerant Cansby. And so the research assistant approached him as well to see what was going on and he did the same vocalization to her. So she just assumed maybe he wasn't feeling well or was having a bad day. So eventually the group moved on and when she went to follow them and walked by where Camspey was sitting, she noticed that he had been sitting next to a snare. So one of these traps that were set for antelope, but it's very easy for gorillas, particularly young gorillas to get caught in them. And so by doing this vocalization, he protected and kept all of these youngsters in his family away from this very dangerous object in their environment. But what she was really moved by was that she felt like not only was he protecting them, but also he did the same thing to her, that he was protecting her from that snare as well. Um, So just, you know, again, one of these stories about how gorillas care for um, they're most vulnerable, and look out for their most vulnerable. But you know these individuals when you know, and you've seen them every day of their lives. You know their their individual experiences, and then you see how that plays out over the course of a forty year lifespan. You can really um, learn some very interesting things about them, but also about how we share a lot of our traits with them. These are not, not unique to us, but they are in our in our DNA. Well, wow, that's fascinating.
1: Is there something you wish more people knew about
3: gorillas?
2: Uh, I always say that I eat, sleep, and breathe gorillas, Um, and so I'm kind of, I I just assume that other people think about them as much as I, maybe not as much as I do, but what always surprises me is that people don't realize how at risk they are, and that, you know, um, what we talked about, the fact that mountain gorillas are a success story, but again, there's a thousand of them left on the planet. That's not very many at all. It's I think it's one mountain gorilla for every 8 million people on the planet. We've talked a lot about ecotourism. But ultimately, gorillas live in the second largest tropical rainforest left on our planet. They live in the Congo Basin. And these rainforests are critical for the survival of our own species. They are one of our best natural defenses against climate change. And you can think of the gorillas as kind of the gardeners of these forests. They help keep these forests healthy through their natural foraging um, and other behaviors. And so protecting gorillas is, 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 you know, it's important for them because they need it, but it's also important for us because we need it for the future of our planet and of our own species. Yeah. I would say they're not
1: just gardening for us in terms of climate change, but also as uh, our souls, right.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: we need to all protect each other. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to ask you what you think your biggest accomplishment with Diane Fossey Center is.
2: Um, I mean, I'm the most proud of our team and the team that we have built over time because they are the ones, they are the front line of conservation. They are out there every single day, you know. Uh, protecting these animals, protecting their habitat. Um, We're incredibly proud of our new campus. We haven't really talked about it other than, you know, kind of what it does, but even in building it, it is, um, we took former agricultural space, And we planted over 100,000 native species to try and recreate the forest that probably was there just 20 or 30 years ago, but was lost to agriculture so that the whole place can be a learning laboratory so that students that live near the park but don't necessarily have access to the park can come on site and learn about the biodiversity that's in their backyard. So we built this beautiful facility that it, at the end of the day is not only really important for our work, but what we're seeing is it's it's elevating the role of conservation in the country of Rwanda because people come and see this absolutely beautiful facility um, and they realize that, wow, the work that is happening here must be important because look at this investment. And so it's really elevating people's understanding and concern about conservation. That's amazing. And how can people who are listening
1: uh, support the gorilla conservation. Obviously, one of the best ways to support gorilla conservation is to make a trip to Rwanda and Uganda and, and pay for those permits. That goes to the community. But what are some of the ways that they can contribute to the FOSSI Fund and the work that you're doing?
2: Oh, that's a great question. And yes, gorilla tourism is a really key part of conservation for gorillas. And I, I encourage you when you, to come. Um, it's life changing. And when you come. You know, hire a porter. This is someone that's going to help you get up this mountain, Um, and it's a source of local income. You know, tip your guides, tip the trackers. All of that feeds into the economy that is helping to protect these gorillas. Uh, But from the Fossey Fund's perspective, you know, we are a nonprofit. We actually don't benefit at all from gorilla tourism. All of that money goes into Um, the government of Rwanda. So for us, we raise all of the dollars for the work that we do um, through philanthropy. We have about 350 people on the ground between the two countries every single day. So becoming a donor, becoming a monthly supporter, um, we have an adopt a gorilla program where you can adopt a gorilla. These are gorillas that we are out protecting every day. And when you adopt them, you get to hear a little bit of their biography. And over the course of the year of your adoption, you learn more about what they're doing, but also that money, comes and helps the Fossi fund. Um, people ask a lot. I think another, you know, not everyone has the financial resources to give, but one of the most important things is also just being an educated voter, knowing that conservation is an important issue and voting for individuals that care about conservation that want to go into our government and make sure that resources are available and that conservation is a priority. Spreading the word, um, you know, So many times, those of us in conservation, we speak in an echo chamber. We're talking to people that are already there and already care. We need to get this message out to larger audiences. So when you become educated about what's happening to gorillas and about how amazing they are spreading that within your social network um, is a great way that you can also help. So.
1: Fantastic. All amazing suggestions. Thank you so much Tara for joining me and for sharing your passion and your purpose and your story. And I hope that we inspire lots more people to go and spend time with these amazing creatures and and help preserve their environment and their species.
2: Well, thank you very much. I love to talk about gorillas. I could do it all day. And so I'm always grateful when someone gives me the opportunity to speak about them and also to speak about Rwanda um, and just that part of the world that means so much to me. And I do hope people will come and visit and come and see us at at our campus because it's a great way to deepen your connection to the gorillas and to learn about um, the amazing history of studying and protecting these animals. Thank you so much, Tara.
1: If this conversation inspired you to plan a trip to Rwanda, head to Indigari.com for one of our in-depth travel guides.
0: Share the show. Find more episodes of Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley. Streaming now on all podcast platforms. The journey continues. You're listening to Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley.
1: In coming out of my interview with Dr. Tara Stowinski, I thought it would be helpful to get into a little bit more of the logistics around gorilla trekking, which, as we spoke about, is a bucket list traveler experience. I've been lucky enough to have trekked with the gorillas eight times, and I have to say each one of those experiences is one of the most exciting hours I've spent in my life. But trekking is a pricey endeavor, and there are a lot of logistics involved. So I thought to get into the nitty-gritty details on the trek, I would invite my producer from Indigare, Katherine Nathanson, to discuss. She's also trekked with the Endangered Mountain Gorillas twice, and she actually got to film with the gorillas earlier this year and with Dr. Tara at the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund for a behind-the-scenes tour that we produced for one of Indigare's partners. So, Catherine, thank you for joining me.
3: Hi, Melissa. Thanks for having me back and to speak about no less one of my favorite topics, primate trekking in Rwanda.
1: Okay, so let's start with the logistics around getting to Volcanoes National Park in Rwanda. I'm going to say that I've been hoping for direct flights from New York to Kigali, which is the capital of Rwanda, for a number of years. And we may see that in 2024. But until then, tell us how you get there.
3: Well, that's very exciting news. We'll definitely be staying tuned there. So first, to give everyone a lay of the land, Volcanoes is sometimes referred to as Virunga National Park. And this is the home of the endangered mountain girls, which we're going to be speaking about a lot here. So most travelers are going to fly into Rwanda's capital city of Kigali and spend one to two nights in the city. And then they'll head on to the national park, which is an easy two and a half hour drive, mostly over paved roads. And Rwanda is known as the the land of a thousand hills. So there's going to be a fair amount of going over those mountains that happen on the drive, but it's pretty smooth.
1: And it's spectacularly scenic. I've done that drive many times, and it is a little bit windy at certain points, but it is really beautiful because of those hills and the volcanoes and all of the, the life that you see streaming between Kigali and Virunga. Um, And to get to Rwanda, I usually either fly New York-Brussels or New York-Amsterdam. Um, and you can go either way. There are direct connecting flights through Brussels and Amsterdam.
3: And I flew through Turkish Air through Istanbul, which is another nice option.
1: OK. So how many nights do you recommend and, and does Indigari recommend once you're in volcanoes?
3: I would say I am in line with what Indigari recommends. So I would say we recommend three nights, which gives two full days, which gives you ample time for primate trekking and also to enjoy these incredible lodges and volcanoes, which you are absolutely going to want to do.
1: And when you say primate trekking, it's in part because you're talking about the gorillas, which I happen to think you should try and see twice, even though it's very expensive to get gorilla permits for two days in a row. But we'll get into that, I'm sure. But you also have the golden monkeys. So that's the other primate, right?
3: That's the other primate. And then if you leave volcanoes, you also have the chimps. But we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more later.
1: So are there details that travelers should know before starting to plan a trip to Rwanda?
3: Yes. So as you mentioned, gorilla tracking is not a cheap adventure. There's only eight tracking permits that are issued per troop per day, which amounts to 96 total permits available on a given day. So this allows the gorilla encounter to be extremely intimate, but also pricey. The cost is $1,500 per person. And there's also a strict age minimum that I want to highlight of 15 but importantly so everyone knows 10% of the revenue from the permits is actually channeled towards local communities to build schools and health centers as well as roads and the entire operation also employs a tremendous amount of local Rwandans giving employment opportunities that also encourage them to peacefully coexist with the gorillas and protect them which you can really feel when you're in Rwanda period but especially in Volcanoes And then for the summer and Rwanda high season months, permits should be purchased a year in advance, and they should be purchased actually at the time of trip booking. But I'd go as far as to say that the permit availability should be checked even before you confirm airfare and hotels. And then, of course, Indigari can assist with planning trips to Rwanda, and we really encourage using trip planning for this destination to ensure everything runs smoothly.
1: Those are all really good points. And I will also... Mention because we've planned so many trips to Rwanda, we know this. Some people will say, "But is the 15 age minimum really a minimum?" Yes, you have to give your passport to get a gorilla permit, so there is no faking the 15 years old. Um, <laughs> and and the reason for all of the the permits um, requirements and the few number of people is to protect the gorillas, as Dr. Stowinski mentioned, because we, we don't want them to be overexposed to humans. So. Let's talk about the experience. What do you how would you describe the trek, Catherine?
3: Yes. Yeah, so everyone has a different experience on their trek. So I'm going to go really general here. But currently there are 22 gorilla families in Rwanda and 12 of them are available for tourist visits. So when visiting the gorillas, you're going to travel with a group of eight travelers, as I mentioned, or you do have the option to privatize and buy out your group. So again, that's extra pricey, but some people will do it. And you'll also travel with a park guide, ranger, and porters who you can hire for just $10 per day. And they'll carry your bag or your walking stick. And we really encourage for each individual on the trek to hire a porter. So you're going to arrive early to park headquarters, 7 AM sharp, and you're gonna start the trek closer to 8.30 a.m. and then most groups will end up back at their lodges between 1.30 and 2.00 p.m. So the trek involves hiking through the agricultural lands before you're gonna find the park boundary. You're then gonna cross into the mountainous forest while you'll set off to find your gorilla family. And then once you arrive to the family, you actually only have one hour to spend with them where you'll watch, observe, of course, take a lot of photos and just be with them in their natural habitat. So why don't we get into the fitness levels
1: required for these hikes? Because that's a big concern for a lot of people.
3: Okay, so gorilla trekking is strenuous and can require difficult hiking through dense jungle and terrain and sometimes for long distances. So travelers should be, we say, reasonably physically fit. The treks range from an easy hour walk in a field to several hours up a mountain with steep slopes in potentially muddy conditions, as we keep mentioning, with heavy brush. So it's really best to be mentally prepared for a potentially strenuous hike. So as we said, porters can be hired in general but also there's the opportunity for porters to be hired to take those with mobility issues up the mountain in a stretcher and then upon arrival to the trekking headquarters the guides will try to pair guests based on physical activity and desired length of trek with a gorilla family because they are locating them every single morning but again this really cannot be guaranteed in advance and it really can't even be asked in advance
1: yeah and and I do think they do a good job but again you' you get what you get and you, do. you don't and you, <laughs> and you don't get to request so you mentioned the mud um there are certain times where it is more difficult to get in to see the gorillas and that is when it rains can you talk about seasons
3: yes and I will say on the rain note Rwanda is a rainy country and it's part of the fun of gorilla trekking but yes there are better times to visit. So the drier season is June to September, and then December to February. The busier months are June, July, and August, largely due to summer break travel. So these months also can get super busy, and all bookings, as we keep saying, should be confirmed very far in advance. It is possible to go gorilla trekking all year round, but the trekking, again, can just be a bit tougher in the rainy season, April to May, and October and November.
1: Okay, so we've talked about being stuck in the rain, let's get into gear because there are certain things we obviously advise. And And you mentioned the rainy season. With climate change, the rainy seasons are less predictable. So it can be dry in November when I've been there. It was very dry. And then it can rain in the dry season. So you should just be prepared. But let's talk about what we recommend.
3: Yes, and I know you've got a lot of thoughts here too, so please jump in. But yes, guests should always be dressed for rain or sun and just be flexible. As far as the specific attire for a trek, I recommend leggings and then light waterproof pants and i say leggings because there's stinging nettle in the forest so leggings will give you that extra layer of protection to protect you against the stinging nettle if you do get stung by it it's just a plant the gorillas eat it it's going to sting for you know maybe up to five minutes and then just quickly wither away but something to be aware of we also recommend waterproof athletic shirts lightweight raincoats gaiters hiking boots, high socks, gardening gloves, which again is really just to protect against that stinging nettle, a good hat for rain or sun. And then they do offer a walking stick when you're there. Porters will carry your backpack, and a lot of lodges will also give you a backpack if you don't bring one yourself, so just check on that in advance. And I recommend, you know, bringing water in there, packs and bug spray, and of course your camera. And then I mentioned gators at the beginning, and gators are there to protect you against the fire ants. A lot of lodges also do provide gators, so that's another thing to check on in advance. Okay, and now will you talk a little
1: bit about some of the other activities that one can do in volcanoes?
3: Yes, of course. So for those interested in tracing the footsteps of Diane Fossey, who you all just heard so much about through Dr. Taras Stowinski, and also for people who are more adventurous and up for a bit of a challenge, you can actually trek to see her campsite and burial site. She lived between two volcanoes, Mount Bisoke and Mount Karasembe, and her site was called Karasoki, combining the two volcanoes names so I haven't done this one unfortunately it's a more strenuous hike that takes around seven hours round trip the permit for this only costs $75 per person and while it should be purchased in advance they're not as scarce as gorillas and then you also have the golden monkey truck so anyone who knows me knows that I am absolutely obsessed with these golden monkeys. So it's a must do, I think. Permits here are not as competitive as the gorillas. They only cost $100 per person, and there is an age limit of 12 years old for this one. It's a similar one-hour visit, but a much less strenuous hike. You actually will often find the golden monkeys in the potato fields and the agricultural lands at the forest entrance so you don't even need to go into the forest to see them often the golden monkeys are a unique species known for their gold and yellow patches that can be seen all over their bodies and the reason they're in the potato fields is because they are often stealing potatoes from the farmers so some of the locals don't love them but they are very very cute there's also a village visit and then for those who have Ample extra time, there are multiple big hikes that require overnights in the area and up and around the volcanoes, like the Karasimbe Volcano Hike for the More Adventurous. This is the one I plan to do on my next trip. Great. Yeah, camping up there. And lastly, you heard about Dr. Tara speak about this one a lot, but you can visit the Diane Fossey Gorilla Campus, which I cannot recommend enough. While there are self-guided tours, I really recommend one of the special behind-the-scenes tours, which does cost a bit extra, but it gives you access to the incredible experts at the campus who you'll definitely want to hear from, and you get to go into the research labs like the skeleton lab. There's also a fecal lab, and both of them are really fascinating.
1: And the experts can share unbelievable stories about all the guerrilla families. And that's one of the things I loved so much about the Diane Fossey Guerrilla Campus. Thank you, Catherine. You've given us a lot of great information, and I hope this helps our listeners as they plan their own trips to Rwanda. I will also add that I do not think a trip to Rwanda is complete without some time in Kigali learning about the genocide. And so we absolutely can help you with that if you're interested, but definitely don't go to Rwanda and miss understanding the recent history of the country and how they have overcome an incredible genocide with real resilience to become a shining beacon for the rest of Africa as the cleanest, safest, greenest country in all of Africa. So so much in Rwanda.
3: Thank you, Catherine. Yes, there is so much in Rwanda, and I definitely hope this has inspired people to make the trip. It is a trip of a lifetime, for sure. So thanks for having me on, Melissa.
1: Thank you so much for tuning in to learn more about the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund from Dr. Tara Stowinski. If this conversation inspired you to plan a trip to Rwanda, head to indigari.com for one of our in-depth travel guides. And coming up on Passport to Everywhere, I'll be speaking to Chip Conley, the founder of the Modern Elder Academy. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and send us a message on Instagram at Indigari Travel. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful week.
0: The adventure continues next week. Find more episodes of Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley streaming now on all podcast platforms. And anytime on the SXM app. Follow Melissa on Instagram at at Indigari Founder. And for more on Melissa, head to Indigari.com. I-N-D-A-G-A-R-E. Send us your questions about travel. Passport at SiriusXM.com. Or call us at 646-535-7297. This has been a password to everywhere.